Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to True Health Live. This is a podcast where we highlight hot topics in public health um, that are getting to the core and the truth and the basic principles of public health issues. And we're going to do that from several different lenses. So I'm your host, Deja Sully. Um, a little bit about myself. I have a background in public health. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've been doing a lot of work in policy and advocacy uh, on tobacco control, which is also some social and behavioral health. And I'm joined here today by some of my good friends and co-hosts who have agreed to join me on this venture in uh, talking about public health and exposing ourselves and our thoughts to the world. And I'm going to have them introduce themselves. So without further ado, here are my co-hosts, uh, starting with Dr. Alia Konsani. Hi, my name is Alia Kumsani. Uh, my background, um, it's a little bit about my, myself and my background. Um, I did a PhD um, specializing in cancer and blood vessels, so tumor vascularization. Um, and upon uh, completing my PhD, I started at Wheel Cornell Medicine. Um, basically, my role is divided between two, um, two kind of roles. One is a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Pathology. And the other role is more involved in public health equity, where I'm the youth program lead at the Office of Community Engagement and Outreach uh, as part of the Maya Cancer Center at Wheel Cornell Medicine. Thank you, Deirdre, for inviting me on as a co-host. Really privileged. And it's a pleasure to be on. So hi, everyone. My name is Anishka Gopilal. Um, it's a honor to be here with you all. Um, and I'll just start off by letting you all know I am a phenomenal woman, career-wise and in life. Um, too often we start off by saying, you know, like what we do in our role in society. But um, in life, I am a phenomenal person. Um, and I'm also, in my career, a health, uh, public health professional. I have 20 years of diverse um, experience in clinical and research. Um, also administration and uh, community organizing. And so I've been working in po health policy and programming and most recently within the last five to six years, really um, diving deeply into community work where I'm, I'm organizing programs, working one-on-one -on -one with community members and um, community leaders and really serving um, underrepresented community and folks um, in the New York City area, all the boroughs, and a little further out as well. Um, and so I'm just happy to be here and to continue the work with you wonderful ladies um, and further our impact and get rolling. Yes, hi. And I am Precious Stepney. Uh, my background is in public administration. Um, I guess my, my area of expertise is primarily in behavioral health care. Uh, as a executive director and in some quality management perspectives in the past, um, I've looked at and examined the healthcare disparities for the um, mentally ill and also uh, populations in the criminal justice and juvenile justice arena. So I look forward to, you know, the varying perspectives that we'll all bring to the weekly discussion. And again, thank you for um for inviting me to participate in this podcast, Deidre. Very exciting. Absolutely. I'm so excited that all of you agreed um, because like this is a new adventure for all of us. So I think it'll be like a whole lot of fun. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. 
Um, I think, you know, definitely one of the biggest things on the world stage today when it, when it comes to public health is COVID. Let's just put it right out there and, you know, what we're dealing with and thinking about pandemic. Um, and also, like, the truth is COVID itself, you know, really kind of put public health and, like, the, the importance about public health, like, back on the world stage. You know, we were just kind of, like, in the shadows doing what we do, you know, prevention and promotion and all of those things. Um, and just making sure that uh, the health, the, you know, the health of the people was at the forefront for us. And so now, you know, I think like the expertise of public health professionals is really needed. You know, people need that information and that's exactly what public health is. So getting to COVID, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's ravaged world populations. It has, you know, really brought devastation to a lot of different areas all over the globe. And what we know here um, in the United States, you know, it started off with a lot of different misconceptions. Oh, certain groups of people can't get it. Then we saw like a proliferation of a bunch of people getting it. It really highlighted health equity. And I like to say highlight because it seems that there's this, this idea that, you know, people are just coming to the realization that there are health disparities, right? And health gaps. And it's like, no, COVID just highlighted what was already there. So, you know, I want us to like really, um, get into some of that. But first, it's like, well, what do we know about it? So we know that, you know, there's millions of people um, within this country alone that have contracted, and we know that there's been um, hundreds of thousands of deaths. So, um, Alia, like, I'd like you to, like, kind of bring us in on what some of those numbers are. Like, can you speak to some of the rates and prevalence and what we've been seeing, you know, from that um, clinical point of view? So I think it's really important um, when, when talking about numbers is to emphasize the point that we're not just dealing with numbers. We are actually dealing with human beings. And, you know, every life is a priority. Every life matters. Um, and it's not a zero sum game per se. So when it comes to metrics, um, there are several important metrics that have been, you know, utilized in the media. Um, you know, we see them utilized by researchers, etc. However, we have to acknowledge the limitations when it comes to these kind of numbers. You know, there's a tendency to overestimate, tendency to underestimate. Um, but I think the most important question that people are really interested um, in is the risk of death from COVID. And that's really not a straightforward question. It's not simple. It's pretty complex. Um, so how likely is someone to die from COVID? Um, you've got different metrics, like I mentioned, you've got the case fatality rate, you've got the infection fatality rate, and you've got the crude mortality. So looking at the media and looking at, looking at like many kind of the literature that's out and about these days, you can see a lot of, you know, a lot of case fatality rates are being quoted. Um, and basically what the case fatality rates, um, kind of rely on are confirmed cases. What the problem with that, and it can be quite somewhat problematic in the sense that, you know, um, many cases are not confirmed. It relies on the total number of deaths. Some people have COVID, but have yet to die from it. So it's really kind of, it can be problematic when it, when it comes to interpreting and understanding, you know, the kind of the numbers and the metrics. Um, so not, it, so C, CFR, which is basically what case vitality rate is basically it can't be, you know, you can't elucidate from that that, that it's the same risk of death for an infected person, which is the infection fatality rate. And that's probably something that is a little bit more important when looking into deaths and prevalence, etc. Um, we know COVID is fast moving. It's ever evolving. 
So these numbers are, at the same time are not biological contents, you know, co constants. They they rely on particular contexts, populations, and of course time. So um, what we do know, however, is that um, the elderly are more at risk of contracting COVID. We also know that there are pre-existing health conditions um, which present higher risks. So in order of those risks, we've got cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic uh, respiratory disease, hypertension and cancer. And we know in particular in the US, you know, there's a high prevalence of metabolic syndrome as well. So that's something to consider. We've also got to consider that when we compare different countries and, you know, numbers and metrics, like I mentioned, we have to be really, really careful because, you know, um, you know, different uh, there's different scales of testing. There's also um, certain communities that don't undergo testing and are not not being represented. Um, so there are a number of variables that need to be considered. But that said, when it comes to where we are at currently, um, so if we look at the reported cases in the U.S. at the moment, we see we're seeing a five five week downward trend, which um, which despite the fact that we are still reporting cases that are more than what we saw in the first two peaks of the pandemic. Testing, when it comes to testing, we see a, a lower percentage, percentage of pos, pos, uh, positivity. So that's continuing to decline. Vaccinations, you know, we've, we've got 57, around 57 million vaccinations that have been administrated. Um, new hospital admissions, again, they're decreasing from the national peak. And when it comes to deaths, of course, those are continuing to fluctuate. So, in, in essence, we are seeing progress, but of course, you know, as I mentioned, it's COVID is ever evolving. We're learning new things along the way, and we have to be very careful in the way we interpret um, the metrics and how we kind of how we extract information from that when it comes to understanding, and especially when it comes to how we kind of tackle uh, the pandemic. Right. Thanks so much. You know, that I think that was really. Um, um, at least illuminating for me um, to hear about, you know, there's a difference between, you know, the rate of, uh, you know, uh, death because of infection and so on. And I think one of the things that really stood out or one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking was about, you know, health promotion. And then some of that, that's like the health education campaigns, right? And so, you know, I mentioned earlier about how there were so many misconceptions about like who could get it and who couldn't. You know, and then, you know, everybody can access the Internet at this point. Everybody's got a smartphone, you know, a tablet, or they got a way to access info. And somebody could just go on that. Yeah, but, you know, we have almost all 500,000 deaths and, you know, people are getting it every day. You know, what are some of the things that, you know, us as public health professionals, like for myself, I, you know, have been able to, like, think about media campaigns and run media campaigns. Like, what do you think some ways to, you know, kind of educate people like maybe even like some of the language used to like kind of help people kind of conceptualize and understand that yes there are these deaths but but maybe here's ways to protect yourself or here's why you know everybody may not contract or everybody may not show symptoms or everybody may not die you know so i think yeah definitely i would agree the messaging is really important and i think you know being you know Teaching people in um, in a way that's not intimidating, where they don't feel intimidated by the facts, um, in such a way that they understand, you know, the risk 
um, per se. And also, I think the emphasis on the comorbidities is really important. We really do need to educate people about how to take care of their health, how to better their health, how to reduce, you know, things like obesity. Um, you know, these kind of, you know, these are these are things that we can do daily in our life and we can pass on throughout the generations as well uh, on a genetic front as well. So I think that that's a really, you know, really important message to to kind of give to people to really, you know, we need to start taking care of our health, kind of putting ourselves in situations where we're not vulnerable in that sense. Um, and also, um, I think it's important that some people, you know, it's not just the con you know, the degree to which you contract COVID or whether you contract it or not, or the risk, you, you know, you're yeah. at um, for, you know, contracting COVID. Um, I think it just doesn't depend on the disease itself, but it also depends on what's available in terms of treatment, you know, what's available in terms of, you know, underrepresented communities, um, the disparities that, you you know, you, you noted previously. I think it's really important to kind of um, highlight these kind of these occurrences and to really target the populations that are really in need. Yeah, thank you. Um, something you said, you talked about generations, right? And so I'm thinking like, so physically, like I'm in the New York tri-state area and um, um, I actually work in New York, well, when we were not socially distanced and quarantined. Um, and one thing about New York, it is densely populated, right? And, and I'm sure, you know, this, there's, that is not, uncommon for you know major cities across the u.s and so when we think about like areas or urban areas that are heavily populated and you know kind of marrying that with the you know some of the misconceptions earlier right so the reason why generations kind of stuck out to me is because when we're living in these tight places you will find in a lot of areas um specifically like low-income areas there are people who are living in spaces where there's like multiple generations in one household, right? You know, between two and three, maybe more. And that's definitely the case in a place like New York. So when we hear things like, you know, uh, misconceptions like, well, black people can't get it or African-Americans can't get it, it makes you stop and think like, well, what, what makes you think that? And then after that, there was this proliferation of people of color, specifically African-Americans, um, contracting COVID. And a lot of that, you know, has to do with, you know, a lot of those uh, comorbidities and all these other variables, like living in uh, very tight spaces um, at the same, uh, in the same space. Um, another piece of that is, you know, especially when we, you know, kind of went underground, I like to say, we, you know, everything was closed and we were like uh, curfewed and things like that. You have what we call the uh, essential workers or your frontline workers. And that doesn't necessarily mean all of the doctors and the nurses, but what about the garbage men? You know, what about the people who do work in hospitals that may not be doctors and nurses? There are a lot of people in uh, um, a lot of communities, low-income communities, who are nurses um, and nursing assistants, and they are working um, in the hospitals. And so they can't necessarily stop. You know, some of us have the luxury of being able to work from home, but some people have jobs where they can't. And so they are, they are still your frontline workers or your essential workers. And so what's happening is if they're, um, they're working and then they're going home where they're living in a tight cramped space with multiple people, and they're not fortunate enough to have that capability of quarantining in a hotel or something like that, they're literally taking whatever they were exposed to out on the street back home. 
And so then you see this proliferation of people, you know, just um, coming down with COVID, contracting it because everybody's living on top of each other. So not only are we having multiple generations in one household, but in a city that's densely populated, something like that cannot necessarily be contained. So in, in my mind, that really speaks to kind of how we move and how we live in community. And so that's where, like, I really want to hear from you and then Precious about, you know, what does that look like? Like, what are some of the things that, you know, you can share about, like, the toll that this has taken on communities, you know, you know, through that lens and, like, even drilling down to specific populations? Sure. Um, So I'm going to just start off by saying this. I've witnessed such resilience from community members, um, like people are really overcoming the hurdles and the the struggles and the challenges um, in a way that's very, very much inspiring. Um, So when thinking about what it was last March, Mm -hmm. things were just happening and we like, I think every one of us was more like confused, like what's happening? Cause it's like, it popped out of nowhere. Um, and then two, it mm-hmm. was fear that started building up in folks because we didn't know what it was. Even the professionals, like even the, the, the high of the highest were, were like, what's happening here? You know, um, people were getting infected by the bolts, you know, and it was coming at a fast pace. So I think a lot of us were scared. Community member, communities and community members, leaders of the community just were trying to figure things out, um, you know, and fast, fast forward. And even if you do, you know, in between time, like it's like trial and error, just an everyday lived experience, um, learning as you go, being able to adjust um, and being open to changing your routine um, and stepping into like a new way of living has really been, I think, very imperative for communities to continue to thrive. And I've seen that. I've seen people go from you know, being super afraid um, to now turning things all around because it's like, you know what, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit here and um, allow it to, to bring us down, allow it to stop our daily lives? Allow, you know, are we going to allow it to stop us from moving forward? And um, a lot of folks, a majority of folks are like, no, we're going to keep pushing. Like, we're still going to do the work that we have to do. We're just going to have to be a lot more cautious and more intentional. We we're going to keep everything together. I've seen a lot of unification. Um, I've seen community members come together, helping each other, small businesses coming together. And it's literally like a each one teach one type of um, atmosphere and one hand helping the other. You know, it sounds all like, you know, all, all googlies and things like that. But it really is coming together in that way, because at the end of the day, it affects all of us. There is no, it's, I'm going to skip because you're, you're this or you're that. The disease has no preference, right? It's everybody. Um, so I really have seen a lot of unification and a lot of resilience, um, in people. Um, but also a lot of people haven't had access to information, you know, and even another level to that, those who have had access doesn't necessarily mean they understand the information given. And so, I, what what I feel is that you know those 
who are making policy, who are um, doing the messaging, you have to understand that people are at different levels. And the main thing is that if you're going to share information, you have to share it in different levels where people understand the language. So I can't come out here and have, you know, and write something that I'm going to share with the public on like a master's level or a PhD level and expect um, underrepresented or underserved communities to understand if they don't have certain a certain education level, you know, yeah. I'm, they're going to be totally lost. Um, and then, and that's a big dis- disadvantage and a big disservice to folks because one may understand and the other isn't. And so where is the equity in that? You know, there is no, there, there isn't none. Um, especially what if their language barriers, what if for folks who are um, migrating to the U S um, the culture, the culture differences, um, some families, like we were talking about intergenerational and so forth, or families, three generations living together or just like uh, different components all together. So it could be like a two bedroom apartment and it's 15 people. Right. I witnessed that. Like my family are from a different country. And so it's times where, you know, there's it's a one bedroom and it's like seven of us, one bedroom, one bathroom. And, you know, so just being able to keep in mind, okay, for one I'm sharing information, yes, but am I sharing information on all levels, and is it comprehensible to everyone? Is it going to be, um, is the family just coming to America going to understand this? Is the family that only has the children that speak English, is there a way that these children can properly relay the message to the adults? You know what I mean? Um, and, like, are we making sure that if a person does not understand that we're, we're having tools there in the messaging to get them to to a place where they're comfortable and we can break it down even more because we need folks to get tested we need them to feel comfortable that they can have this conversation because again fear is there especially with the you know historical things that have taken place um and so i think the education piece is is massive to share but we have to do it on a level that everyone understands and everyone is comfortable um and once they are access um accessing it um that they can ask as many questions as possible to get that understanding um but um those are really my thoughts one thing that one thing that sticks out though that i can't say enough of is the resilience and unification well those things go hand in hand um so even with all of these different barriers people are overcoming and that is because they're working together and neighbor having that neighbor mentality mm-hmm. is what communities have to have right now to keep them together. And folks are going, pushing forward. Um, I've seen a lot of people like local, even like people who are like local politicians on the corners, like in Harlem, passing out information, masks and hand sanitizers. And I'm happy to see that because they're hitting the pavement and they're doing that. Um, and for those people who are just not aware of what's going on, going on or are in denial and just refuse to accept or, or say like, all right, we're in this pandemic, mm-hmm. they're, they're still pushing to say, okay, you may, you may not understand it fully, but here, protect yourself. I'm here for you. And if you want to have a talk, let's have a talk. And so, um, I see a lot of that going on and I see the community, you know, asking, people are getting encouraged and asking questions. Um, a lot of community forums, a lot of talk, and, and it's better to have a conversation than to sit quiet. 
so I, I'm, I'm very happy to, to share with you all that that's things that I have experienced and have seen as I do the community work um, throughout New York City. Hmm. You know, that that brings me um, everything you said, it, it kind of brought me to the idea of grassroots. Right. And grassroots movements and just how in, in the throes of real world life crises, we have to really think about how we retool. And I think some of the positive things that I've seen on the in the mental health care arena or the behavioral health care arena globally is that we, too, had to retool um, when the idea of COVID and this pandemic first began, we kind of thought, okay, well, we're a behavioral health hospital, right? We're a psychiatric hospital. We're a psychiatric healthcare system. And so that's an acute care system issue um, until the beds begin to fill and until, you know, reality that we have these patients with comorbidities. Um, and while we have relationships with the community hospitals, um, there were no beds for them to go into to receive um, basic treatment. Um, at that point, we realized we had to innovate. We had to come up with new strategies. And I think a lot of what Anushka just spoke to was that grassroots um, progression. Um, and some examples of that that were really public, right, were businesses shutting down, but they were manufacturing businesses that use alcohol um, and use other technologies that they had to realize instead of making money doing what they were doing, they had to come in and open their studios to provide a service. And so a lot of the hand sanitizer that were given out to, to local communities came through these companies who were able to see a need and fill a need. Um, and so what you know, while while I'm definitely going to delve into a lot of the um, the more challenging aspects of the underserved population, I wanted to highlight um, the innovation that has that has ensued based on us being in this space of chaos. Right? It's like the lights go out and we don't know what to do. And so while there is that frenzy and that fear, there's after there after that there's this calm and a coming together. And I think that's really, really the testament to like humankind, right? Because there's so many things um, that are put out there to show us that we are divided. But in the end of the day, um, this this pandemic showed that we were all equally vulnerable, but it forced mm -hmm. us to kind of come into a oneness. So I, I think that has been one of the greatest takeaways. Um, with that, I think the idea of retooling and repurposing um, has pushed forward a lot of the um, slow-moving pieces of technology, like telehealth. So telehealth was something that if you had the privilege of having a practitioner who was delving into that arena, you know, you could do a consult over your computer. Um, but I'll say in the, in the in the mental health care arena, it wasn't pushed as hard as it had to be pushed during COVID. Once we didn't want our, our community population of, of clients who, you know, lived in a residential setting or had their own apartment program um, or apartment living, um, we wanted them to remain safe. And we wanted our staff to remain as safe as possible. And mm -hmm. so there was this, you know, ensuring that they had cell phones and that it had, you know, not just 
not just a flip phone, but phones that had the technology to support um, telehealth services um, and telehealth visits, um, we had to look at ways to make sure that medication could get to patients um, without them having to go to the pharmacy or come into the local clinic. Um, but that's just one piece, right? So I can talk to you about the, the patients and, and how we innovate that way. But for me, as a healthcare executive, um, when Deidre spoke of the populations that are not nurses and doctors, right, the healthcare workers, the food service workers, the um, the housekeeping staff, you know, we don't take into consideration that when you think of who's managing infection. Yes, it's the doctors and it's the nurses, but it's equally the housekeeping staff who has to maintain those CDC regulations. Um, and, you know, dare I say, in a population, uh, let's say, in Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens, those are the household. You know, those are the employees who are coming from possibly densely populated households and working double shifts. Um, and what we, I know happened at a lot of hospitals is that there had to be a campaign built around supporting the staff. Um, things like bringing in opportunities to have respite, you know, to have massage, to have um, meditation. I know in my hospital, we created a wellness zone. We repurpose a spiritual center and, you know, purchase a shiatsu chair and bread and ping pong tables just to create a moment of, we know you can't leave, right? And we thank you, but take a minute to just relax. Um, and these are things that you wonder, well, why didn't we think of this before? Um, but, you know, I think that while we may have thought of it before, there wasn't this push for innovation and push to be creative, um, nor was that that oneness of we're, we're living through this together. Um, the best way for me to describe to those who, you know, had the pleasure of being at home was the idea that um, driving to work every day during the pandemic was what I imagine was like driving through any place post-apocalypse, like post-war. There was no one on the street. There was no one on the highway. It was completely desolate. Doors were not open. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it was it was surreal to be out there at you know eight o'clock in the morning and not see anyone but myself in New York City, right on the highway. So um, those those are just some of the things to consider. I mean, as a mother, of course, I have to mention the impact of our children um, and just how we 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 don't have any idea what the psychological impact to us as adults are going to be, right? Those who did not get to hold their loved one's hand as they were transitioning. We we haven't delved into that reality just yet of, of what the trauma, what the PTSD associated challenges will be with COVID 2020 and beyond. Um, but when we look at our children having to sit at a computer screen for my eight-year-old quantified, he says, mom, you know, I did the calculations. I sit at my computer 7.5 hours per day. He's seven. And so, well, he's eight, actually. You know, <laughs> hear me. Younger, okay. 
but it's like, you know, he's eight and how challenging it for, for an eight-year-old little boy to have to sit in front of a screen and where is the socialization um, and that engagement. So I think there's a lot for us to explore as we delve into, you know, the impact uh, because we are all impacted and it's in its multimodal, you know, perspective. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, like a few things I'm like, yeah, seven hours a day in front of the computer for a child is like, I can't even imagine because it's, it's, it's crazy for an adult. And the, the interesting part is I feel like I'm in front of my computer even more now that I'm at home. Like it's, it's so surreal. It's just like, I, I feel like it's actually like more like, 23 out of the 24 hours of the day that I'm like sitting in front of a screen because like so much has to get done. Um, you know, the other part that you talked about, um, was, um, you know, like the effect, you know, the effect that it has on our children, the effect, you know, what, is, what is the fallout or not even the fallout, but what has changed or what are the changes that we're going to see? You know, you talked about telehealth and, um, I think like there, those are definitely topics that we are going to touch on like all throughout um, this series. And especially like, you know, for the theme for the first part of uh, the series being COVID, like, you know, telehealth, what's the effect on our children? What's the effect on overall health for everybody else? Especially now we're in year two. We are uh, COVID year two. What's happening? Like we can all like look back at the last 365 days and be like, that was a dumpster fire. It's just like, like, you know, like fire spreading across the countryside, like really quick and swift. And like, we, you know, like you said in this, like, what do we do with this? Um, so like one thing that I wanted to kind of ask everyone, like, you know, kind of just do like a round robin on, um, you know, what does that mean for you too? Like, what does a second round mean for the people? Like based on like what we've seen, I know for me, um, doing public health, um, and it, yes, it's specific to tobacco control, but it's really changed the way that I can engage and interact with the community. So um, for me, that looks like, you know, everything being virtual, um, not just a good portion of it, but really moving over everything. So that means like moving any uh, campaign to digital, um, working with community-based um, organizations and community boards and making sure that we are uh, engaging in their digital meetings and virtual meetings, holding more uh, digital and web-based forums, like everything is going to be digital. So like we are, it's like you're, we're contributing to the like, I don't know, I'm going to make up a word, over Zoom vacation or like, you know, like just over over Zoom meeting, you know, for that everybody's Zoom fatigue or like meeting fatigue that everybody from the adults to the children that we're all experiencing. So that means like, you know, really figuring out, okay, well, how do we manage the amount of time that we're in front of a screen, right? You know, so, so that's what it means for me. Like, so what about some of you ladies? So like, uh, Precious, like, what does that mean um, for you? Like round two, what does it look like? Yeah. So, you know, I actually, I want to, Pulled something from uh, something that I read in the Atlantic, right? And it says the pandemic will end not with a declaration, but with a long protracted exhalation. Even if everything goes according to plan, which is significant, if the horrors of 2020 will leave lasting legacies. I think that 
when we spoke about generational, you know, we think of our bloodline, we think of our children and our grandchildren and maybe even our grandparents. Um, but the legacy of what this, you know, what 2020 and beyond looks like is really we're writing it every single day. Um, and I think in that, you know, for me, there isn't one particular thing, because as I shared earlier, I think it's so it's in everything. It's the air that we don't get to breathe as freely because now, you know, there's this, I was listening to NPR and there's this discussion about double masking and whether it's, you know, about, it's, it's yet another level of appropriate protection. Um, but then let's think about, you know, what are, what are the implications of having a mask on your face, period, to just your ability to breathe? Um, and how are we balancing that, right? And not in an unsafe way, but how are we in nature by ourselves more often in order to make sure we're, we're breathing, you know? Um, so, so if I'm to take one or two things, I think it's really looking at us all having to look at our life, life balance. You know, we've made it a work first life balance. Um, making really like, how do you fit life into work? Um, but I think what we're, and, and the challenge will become greater because as you pointed out, you feel like you're at your computer working 23 out of 24 hours a day working from home. So where is life in that, right? You're in your house. Where is the fresh air in the dead of winter in that? So I think we have an opportunity to innovate beyond anything that we've gleaned from our education you know we're all prof educated professionals but this is an opportunity to kind of go within and decide for ourselves what's best and what's right um and still use what we know what we learned and what what the world what science is teaching us to be safe and healthy um so yeah yeah i think it's it's much more global for me as, as it pertains to what's next yeah, I like that. Life-life balance. Yeah, because I remember just thinking like, oh, now I have to bring work home. And there, it was just like, well, where's the line of demarcation? Like, where's that separation between now work and home? You know, because there was a piece of me and I'm a commuter and there was a piece of me that was like, I don't mind the commute. There's like a separation, like I work over here and I live over here. So they don't need to touch, you know, but now it's like one big, one pot wonder. Mm -hmm. what about you um alia like what is like year two um you know from your stance from your lens like what does that mean so i think um kind of what precious said i definitely agree it's about that you know we're learning how to balance things better but i also think owing to the fact you know myself i can kind of attest to the fact you know being on zoom that zoom fatigue um, I think we it's it's kind of made us focus more on our mental health and the need for mental health support. Um, you know, not everyone has access to you know, open space, um, you know, with the gyms closing, with certain kind of community activities being unavailable. It's really hit a number of people really hard. You know, the fact that they have no outlet, they're stuck at home, you know, the aspect of being at home in, you know, abusive kind of um, situations where they can't escape, they can't go out, they can't get fresh air. It's really, really highlighted the, you know, the importance of, you know, having some sort of outlet, you know, someone to talk to, um, you know, 
kind of you know supporting people on that on that side of things um i for one you know i've been really lucky the fact that i don't you know i don't live in new york city uh i live about half an hour outside of new york city and i i have you know somewhere to walk where i can you know maintain social distancing um you know i can keep safe while doing that but you know a number of people i've spoken to they just feel very isolated they're not seeing friends they're not you know they're losing touch um especially the the elderly you know they're used to seeing their families they're used to having you know gatherings around you know people are getting ill people are are dying and not having that support there um so i think it's really highlighted and emphasized the need you know like like you know like precious you said about the balance you know we we have to take the safety precautions for wearing masks but we have to enable and realize the effect that's also having uh on both our health mental health as well um so yeah and and as you know going back to what you said Deirdre about you know the fact that it's highlighted disparities that were already existing in the community um it's nothing new um so it's really kind of brought to the forefront how people some people are living and i really think that's kind of you know it's it's provided the motivation to kind of to to bring about change and we really need to do that especially with you know we don't know how things are going to evolve it's really hard to predict um but we need to be better prepared and we need to be able to support the community while doing that yes <laughs> your thoughts Nishka. um so i i'm going to piggyback off of what precious said actually all of you in regards to the the life balance i've yeah. recently realized that there is no i've done away with work life balance completely because i'm like no it's a life balance it's not a work life balance it's a life balance the mm-hmm. same concept of um you know oh gosh i just drew a blank but anyhow like for me it's not like i feel like our energy go where where your energy is so if your energy is saying listen i need to chill today i need to relax i need not to be on zoom then you take a mental health day and take a break and step away and disconnect because i too feel like i'm on this computer 23 hours a day and it's like where did all this work come from <laughs> you know um but no it is finding some harmony i want to say that i rather use the word harmony finding harmony between the work and living and so being very intentional of what that day to day looks like in this second round because i'm completely done at this point um so it's like really realizing okay but like what's important like this is this is what it is for right now we don't know what it's going to look like going forward but what am i going to do to stay uplifted how am i going to keep myself uplifted and have in good spirits and and always see the better side of things while doing mm-hmm. the same for my family like i have a 16 year old and she's in like she spends time with her dad and spends time and spend time um with me like that that's how we co-parent that's how our family dynam- dynamics are but it's like when she's with her dad it's still like being with me cuz I'm on FaceTime all the time so it's like I got this the computer going and I got my phone going and <laughs> it's another laptop um and just making sure that she is mentally um free and she's not feeling so overwhelmed because like these 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 kids are the I feel for them because I'm like at at 16 it was none of this you right. know this, this did not exist like 
I was able to engage and socialize with my friends. Um, I was able to go down the block or go to the shopping mall, whatever the case is, or just go outside and sit on my porch. And it was all good, you know, and now it's become like they're in front of the computer doing just as many Zooms as we are. Learn The learning system is so different now. I'm like, are you really learning? Because you got Google at your fingertips. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and she's very honest. She's like, Ma, listen, I've become a math whiz because <laughs> of, of, of Google. And, and my daughter is, is very open. Like, she's a wonderful student, but math is not her strong um, suit. And so um, online learning has definitely t- made her that a genius. But um, in ways, I just feel like we have to really take control of what life looks like, what our lives look like right now and what our loved ones' lives look like. And also for those who we serve, how can we help them navigate to like what life looks like in their comfort zone? You know, um, how, where can we support? What are, what are some ways that we can enhance the tools they have and equip them to, you know, to progress and to thrive in this era that we are in? You know, um, and I wish this could be over by the time we snap our fingers, I get off this, this, um, this call, but that's not the case. And so I think making the best of things, um, in the wor- in this worst case scenario, cause I'll be honest, I lost loved ones during this time. You know, it was very heartbreaking, um, and really took a toll on, on our family because, uh, a grandparent was lost. And mm. he was pinnacle to the family. He was one of the uh, matriarchs. And we couldn't see him, you know. He, he he passed away by himself. None of us was there. We weren't there to, you know, hold his hand or to say, you know, Papa, we love you. And that was very hard, not only for us as adults, but our children, like the grandchildren and the great-grand. Because it's like when we go down down south, we can't, we won't see him anymore, you know. Um, our aunt had passed away. So it's, it's, it's very, it's taking an emotional toll on us, a mental, overall mental toll and a physical toll. And I feel that, um, we have to get innovative and creative. We have to get creative in our personal lives and in our careers. Um, because I think at this point, they obviously link, right? (laughs) They're all linking. So if I can get creative at home, then I can apply that same energy to my work. Um, And I can then apply, as I apply it to my work, I am now serving the community. And so Mm -hmm. if I'm showing my daughter how to cook, and I'm like, and she's at her dad's house, then I, I have to tape it, right, and do all that. I realize that, you know what, we can do that for work. I can put together a talk and do like a, a mini session on healthy eating and have a chef come on and, and make a healthy meal and tell folks how to prepare it, why I'm using these ingredients, how it betters the health, your health and how it makes you have energy or whatever the case might be. Um, and that's me being creative and try and, and helping the community stay healthy and getting, getting the nutrients that they need while we're going through this and still educating them on, you know, say screening. So a lot of that is like what we're definitely going to get into over this series. You know, not everything is going to revolve around COVID. I think there were some really um, interesting points brought up. You brought up, you know, about food. And that's definitely one of the things that we're going to talk about, like nutrition, 
um, you know, our overall health, our mental health, um, even things that don't even seem like they're public health related, but they are, you know. Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidreSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to truehealthlive at gmail.com. See you next time.